Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is legendary guitarist and film composer Wayne Kramer. First of all, what did the highest paid musicians make last year? Well, last year was definitely a unique year just in terms of what people made and how they made it, mostly because people have changed and the way they made their money changed significantly. So let's take a look. Coming in at number 10 is Taylor Swift, and she made $80 million last year. And most of it came from the sale of her albums. Now, she went back and she re-recorded all her albums and then had special editions come out. So a lot of money was made from that. But she also had partnerships with Peloton and Starbucks, and that padded her coffers a little bit as well. At number nine, Blake Shelton at $83 million. Well, he had a windfall of about $50 million that came from the sale of his catalog. Don't forget he made a lot of money on The Voice. He made a little bit on his album, and his tour made about $14.5 million. He was one of the few musicians that were able to tour last year. Number eight, Motley Crue at $95 million. And I don't know that they've ever been on this list. That being said, the reason why they're on it is because sale of their catalog again. Supposedly they made about $90 million, and that's where most of the dough came from. Number seven, Lindsey Buckingham. Again, I don't know if he's ever been on the list. Probably not. Mostly because, again, he sold his catalog to Primary Wave for about $100 million, and that's what he made last year. Do you see a trend here? Number six, Red Hot Chili Peppers at $145 million. Guess what? <laughs> about $140 million of that came from the sale of their catalog. Number five, Ryan Tedder, One Republic's frontman. Now, he's penned some hits with Adele and Taylor Swift and U2, so his songwriting is actually a target for many of the conglomerates that are scooping that up, and because of the sale of his rights, that's where he made his $200 million. Number four, Kanye West, $250 million. This is a little bit different. Didn't come from his catalog. Came, in fact, from his new apparel deal with The Gap. Number three, Paul Simon. Again, I don't know if he's ever appeared on a list like this. $260 million, and again, mostly because his 400 compositions were sold to Sony Music. Number two, Jay-Z. He's hip-hop's first billionaire, and he was actually a billionaire before the $470 million that he earned last year. $300 million came from the sale of his champagne company, and another big chunk came from the fact that he sold Tidal, or most of it, to Square. And then his portfolio also has partnerships with Puma and Tiffany. And number one, big surprise on the list, Bruce Springsteen at $590 million, and yes, the majority of it came from the sale of his publishing copyrights and master recordings to Sony. Now, he did make a bunch of dough on his Broadway show, and he also brought a little bit in with the sale of his book. But if you look at all of these artists, where did all the money come from? Normally, it would be from touring, because tours have paid notoriously big money over the last few years. But in this case, it's the sale of their publishing catalogs, which there's a run on them. If you've had any hits in the past, especially if you were a star or a superstar, there's a company out there that wants to buy your publishing. And that's where everybody made their money last year. 
2022 going to be the same? If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, you can get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, I was reading an article out there about the five plugins that can cause more harm than good. And I agree with most of them, and I'm going to add one here. First of all, stereo wideners. They sound good in practice, but you know what? The way they make everything wide is by playing with your phase. And what that means is you probably won't have good mono fold down as a result. So there are other ways to do this that are better, but stereo wideners are a quick plug-in that I think can really cause more harm than good. Another one is multiband compressors. I think people misunderstand the use for multiband compressors. If you haven't used one before and you buy a four or five band compressor, you think that all of those bands have to be working for you to get what you need out of it. And that's not the case. Usually you're just singling in on one or two bands and that's kind of it. But now with dynamic EQs coming out, they're a lot more flexible and have sort of made multiband compressors passe. Once again, it's another one of those processors that can do more harm than good. Another one is oral exciters. Well, it gives you something kind of unique sounding, but again, it gets it by playing with phase. And it's almost like, boy, if a little bit sounds good, even more is going to sound better, which isn't always the case. And after a while, you begin to think, oh, I don't know if I like it as much. But in the meantime, you might ruin some mixes. Auto-tune is another one. Once again, If you have a vocalist that's lazy or a producer that's lazy and the vocalist doesn't do enough takes for you to comp something good together, well, maybe then you have to rely on something like Auto-Tune. The best mixers that I know use Auto-Tune sparingly, and I know I only use it for one or two notes during a mix, usually the ones that I can't fix any other way. Use it too much, though, you can hear it, and the vocal becomes artificial sounding. And finally, saturators. This one baffles me somewhat because back in the days of tape, we actually tried to get away from that sound because it didn't sound like it was coming off the console. You heard it coming off the console, you went, wow, that sounded great. You play it back off a tape, you went, that doesn't sound as good. So this fascination with saturators, a little bit can be okay, but a lot can really make things sound a lot worse than you needed to. So I would be very careful on using any of these. Again, in small amounts, going to work very well, but you start to overuse them and your mix is gonna go downhill fast. My guest this week is the legendary guitarist Wayne Kramer, who may be one of the most unappreciated but exceptionally influential guitarists in rock. He was a co-founder of the seminal MC5, a band that many would argue started the punk rock movement almost a decade before it became popular. In fact, The Clash even wrote not one, but two songs about Wayne. Wayne has collaborated with the who's who of rock's most elite artists over the years. As a matter of fact, the list is so long that it's best if you go to his Wikipedia page just to find out more. His scoring work can be heard on Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, the HBO comedy series Eastbound and Down, 
ESPN's 54321, In My Own Words, and Under the Lights, and even for the unlabeled Jim Beam commercial. Wayne is extremely passionate about his work with Jail Guitar Doors, a program that provides guitars and musical lessons for inmates at more than 50 penal institutions throughout the United States. He regularly plays concerts with an all-star band at prisons around the country. During the interview, we spoke about why musicians from Detroit are unique, why the MC5 was banned from radio, his prison experience, his work in film and television scoring, and much more in this incredibly frank discussion. I spoke with Wayne from his studio in Los Angeles. Let's go back to the beginning. I want to hear about you getting in the music business. Was the MC5 your first band? No, I was in um, a few kind of neighborhood garage bands that performed at kids' parties and school dances and that kind of stuff, where everybody starts. You can read anyone's memoir, and they're all the same. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. We all start exactly the same way, or did. I'm not so sure it's the same way now, but back then everybody did. I agree. It's different now. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, my mother dated a musician and we we had a couple family friends that were professional musicians, and I was just intrigued with them, you know, because they lived in another world. They worked at night, they slept all day, and they were always talking about crazy shit that happened at the club last night. And I, said, oh, my mother warned me. She said, <laughs> "This, you know, I want you to do what what you want to do, Wayne." and and uh, but this business about being a musician, this is a hard life, you know. First, you got to work at night usually, and you sleep all day. And there's drugs and alcohol, and there are loose women. <laughs> yeah, like that's a problem, right? And she told me true. <laughs> Well, let's move up to the MC5. How did that start? Well, the neighborhood band thing evolved as I met more musicians around the the uh, Detroit area. And um, I, I just, you know, I wanted to have a band. I tried to join other people's bands, but I was always like the youngest guy at the audition. And the older cats could all play better than me. Like in those days, you had to know Hideaway. Oh, yeah. Um, Honky Tonk. You had to know Ventures tunes. And, you know, I could play it a little bit. I knew some of them, but it just seemed like there were always guys that, that were better than I was. So I said, the, the better path will be let's start my own band. And I looked around at school for other kids that wanted to be in a band with me. And uh, eventually that evolved into what we know as the MC5, which I'm still in. Yeah, I guess you can't get away, right? I'm a lifer. (laughs) The interesting thing to me about, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, the musicians that come from Detroit have a special edge to them. And I'm not sure what it is. Maybe you can explain it better. Well, I mean, this is just my uh, thesis that... First, we all knew that that Motown recording band was right over on West Grand Boulevard. 
and I would see those guys at the music store, you know, uh, Jamerson and Bob Babbitt would come in and, and everyone would hang out at the music store. The music store was like the bodega, the musician's neighborhood hangout. And, um, you know, we all listened to what they were recording and what they were playing, and they set the bar very high. And we, we all, or at least I aspired to play at the level that they played. And, you know, there's the working class mentality in Detroit. And in the late 50s and up through the 60s, Detroit was a boom town. The auto industry was raging and there were good union jobs that a guy could raise a family and go on vacation and, and, and buy a house that had two and a half, a two and a half car garage. Mm -hmm. So parents could afford to buy their kids electric guitars on, on a payment plan from Sears. My first proper solid body electric guitar was a Sears Silvertone. I think it was $125 and I was thrilled to death. So it was a, it was a fertile ground. Radio was fantastic in those days in Detroit. And you could hear just such a broad range of music. You know, the, the, the Southerners that moved up from the South after World War II for those good auto jobs brought their culture with them. So there was country radio the rhythm and blues uh, radio stations were fantastic. There was jazz radio and pop radio, and it was all first rate and very competitive and regional. It was territorial. So it just created an atmosphere. And I think the capper is that there were a vast number of nightclubs that had live music. The auto industry went 24-7. These are a lot of young guys with good money in their pockets. They want to go out, meet girls, have a drink, and that means seven days a week. So, to, you know, when I first started working in bars, we played five sets a night, and sometimes five days a week, six days a week. I mean, that's where I kind of learned how to own the stage and, you know, say, look, this is my place of business here. This, this is my job. Yeah, I get it. I, I went through the same thing where when I was in high school, as a matter of fact, I was playing four nights a week by the time I was 15. Yeah. And, and you could because there's just so much work around. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Middle, middle of Pennsylvania, coal country. Yeah, yeah. So the steel mills were were in full operation and, you know, people had money and they wanted to go out. and yeah. A different time. Okay, so the MC5, I remember when I was growing up, I would see all sorts of press on the MC5, you know, reading the, you know, whatever magazines I can get on music magazines. You guys were always in it somewhere, and yet it was difficult to hear your music. Mm -hmm. So wh what's the deal there? What happened? Well, we were um, effectively banned from the radio. We had um, finally secured a recording contract with Elektra Records, um, had a fantastic regional following. Uh, we could put 2,000 kids into the Grandy Ballroom 
without an album, without a hit record, just on the strength of our live performances. And when we released Kick Out the Jams, we of course knew that Kick Out the Jams motherfucker would never be a hit single. I mean, we, we weren't stupid. <laughs> and so we released a, a clean version, Kick Out the Jams, Brothers and Sisters. And the record shot up the charts. Uh, was It was number two in Detroit. It was uh, on NEW in New York. It was number six in Chicago. And the rating services at the time, you remember, they had uh, the Gavin Report and the Drake Report. And if they picked this single, all the radio stations would take their guidance and play the record. And they all picked, you know, they said, you know, the band has a great live show. They're a little bit controversial, but they're exciting. And, you know, this record is going to explode. Well, Electra Records rushed the album out. See, we had a plan. The plan was let the single get as high in the charts as it's going to get. Wait till it's coming down, then release the album, because the album version would be the motherfucker version. But we had ha we would have had a bona fide hit record, and they couldn't stop us. We knew the shit was going to hit the fan when the parents and and teachers and police and prosecutors started hearing motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> and Electra said, oh, "Great plan, you know, we like it." Then when the single took off, they rushed the album out, and when they did that, the shit hit the fan. You know, parents came home for work from work listening to what are you listening to what uh, what is that you know oh it's this new album by the mc5 oh no and you know kids were arrested for selling the record you know and electra said we'll back you we think you have the right to say what you want as artists you know this is a first amendment issue and it you know the the, the rating services said you know get off of the MC5 record. The album has an obscenity on it. And, uh, you know, this is really bad for your station. And they effectively crushed the campaign. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why you didn't hear it on the radio. Yeah, yeah. Was that kind of like the beginning of the end of the band? It was the beginning of the end, yeah. It really broke our stride. Everything was falling into place, and, and uh, that just put a, a, a dark cloud over the band. And uh, then Electra, you know, asked us, could they put out a clean version of the album? And, you know, in those days, they had this thing where, you know, artists all of a sudden had power. And we were in our contract that said we could approve all the advertising. Uh, we had the right to say what we wanted to say. We had the final approval on the mixes, and uh, they said, can we put out a clean version? And we said, absolutely not. And they went back to New York and did it anyway, and then fired us from the label. Mm. Typical label stuff, yeah. Yeah, and, and Atlantic picked up the band. It was Jerry Wexler's parting shot. Here, guy, I'm going to leave you a little something to remember me by. Here, have the MC5. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. They had no idea what to do with us, you know. They they were an R and B label, and you know, but they were record men, and they saw that there was going to be a fortune waiting in this white rock world. That this was 
blowing up, you know, the ballroom circuit was all over the country and bands were, you know, able to tour and, you know, this was going to be big. And, and I think they saw us as the archetype American hard rock band, which we were. But um, they didn't know how to promote us and they didn't know what to do. And uh, John Sinclair, our, my dear friend and our manager, at that point was sentenced to nine and a half to 10 years in prison for possession of two joints of marijuana. And so we had no interlocutor between us and the music industry. And we were crazy. I mean, we, we were unmanageable. And um, so our relationship with Atlantic went in the toilet and uh, we tried a couple other managers and, and by 1972, we couldn't work. Um, we're all starving. And, you know, there's no money changing hands. Things can get tough real quick. Yeah, yeah. And it, it did for you. And then you got your own sentence to prison, which changed your life in many ways, I know. And especially, I think, later on in life, you, you appreciated it. I don't know if you can appreciate it. That's not the right word. But you understood what you came through with. To some degree, yeah. It, it, it uh, you know, it's a traumatic thing uh, the first time you go to prison. I have an understanding of the experience now and, and, uh, and uh, you know, what my fellows go through as well. You know, what the two and a half million of our fellow citizens are going through in America's prisons. Well, let's jump ahead now because I want to talk about jail guitar doors. And it seems appropriate to get into this now because that's one of the things that that in fact, the good that came out of it, I think. It was, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I can say this. Going to prison most likely saved my life. You know, I was drinking and drugging to excess. I'd overdosed a number of times, and I was inhabiting a world that um, was very dangerous. In that time period in the city of Detroit, we had 900 murders. Uh, so guns and crime were out of control and people were killed left, right, and center. And, you know, I, I came too close to being murdered myself a couple times. Had I not gone to prison, I don't doubt that uh, I wouldn't have made it many more years. I mean, it was just, just too dangerous. It was too, the behavior was third degree game playing. So jailhouse doors came, or jail guitar doors came about. It's hard to say. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awkward on the tongue, yes. How did that come about? Well, you know, the, in the MC5, we had a, a, a political consciousness. We had developed that. And we made it part of, of the art that we created. We have this, had this belief that who you were, what you believed in, should be part of your whole life, you know, in your work, in your family, in your friends, that these things aren't separate, that they're all part of one way to be. And uh, so I've always had a, a more than an interest or a fascination, maybe an obsession with why things are the way they are. And, and, uh, and I think that I share that with a lot of people. And um, 
after I came home from prison, uh, I, I was in denial about it for for a couple decades. I, you know, I didn't want to tell stories about it. I didn't talk about it. I mean, if someone asked, I, I would talk about it. If I ran into someone else that had done time, we could talk about it. But it freaked people out that you start talking about your time in prison, <laughs> you know, in, in normal white society, it's beyond the pale. But when I finally started to think about it and realize that, you know, what we were doing in, in America was unprecedented, that we were locking up more people than any nation in the history of the world. I mean, when I went down, there were 350,000 people in prison in the nation. 300 in the state systems and 50,000 in the federal system. And today it's 2 million with some hundreds of thousands in the federal system and the rest in the states. And I was tracking as the prison populations would go up further and further every year. And and it it pissed me off. It, it really made me angry at, at the establishment, the power structure, the government. You know, what's going on, guys? Am I the only one that can see this? Something's terribly wrong here. And so what can I do? Well, I'm of the belief that one person can make a difference. A few people working together can make a huge difference. I mean, look, Hitler almost took over the world with about 15 guys. So one guy could make a difference. What could I do? Well, I'm a musician. I played music in prison. It was very important. I always enjoyed it when bands from the street would come into our prison and put on a show for us. It was terrific. So I thought, okay, I could do concerts in prisons. Maybe, you know, give the guys some entertainment, give, you know, give them some relief for an hour, you know, let them escape prison for an hour and be at a rock concert. And one of the concerts I did at Sing Sing in New York, the infamous maximum security prison. And I rounded up a bunch of my rock star friends, Tom Morello, Jerry Cantrell, Gilby Clark, Handsome Dick Manitoba, Don Was, Who's the singer in uh, Jane's Addiction? Harry Farrell. Harry and his wife, Etty. And one of the other musicians I invited was, um, Boots Riley came, was uh, Billy Bragg, the great British troubadour and activist. And we were, back, we were getting ready to go play and he got his guitar out and, and I'd been working on trying to get a better live electric acoustic sound. My guitar always sounded crappy to me, and his guitar always sounded luxurious and full and crisp. And so he got his guitar on, and it said Jail Guitar Doors on it. And I said, what's up with that? And he said, oh, it's an old Clash B-side. Have you ever heard it? And I said, heard it? They wrote the song about me, Billy. And he said, what you mean? And I said, well, what are the lyrics? And he said, right. Let me tell you about wine and his deals of cocaine. Bloody fucking hell, it uh. is about you. 
I'd forgotten all about it. So he went on to tell me that he had launched an independent initiative in England to celebrate Joe Strummer's life's work. And he called it Jail Guitar Doors, named after that B-side. And he provided guitars for use in prisons in prisoner rehabilitation. So the more we talked about it, and we played the show and had a great event at Sing Sing, and then um, on the ride back, on the bus back to the city, um, we just kept talking and talking and talking. And finally, I said, Billy, you know, this is pretty cool. You do this in England, you're British, but I'm American. I'm an ex-convict and I'm a musician. I want to take this on in this country. And he said, good, because I was just going to task you with it. <laughs> said, you're the only one that can do it. You've been inside. You know how the system works. And I said, that's true. So my wife, Margaret Kramer, Billy Bragg, and I founded Jail Guitar Doors USA uh, almost 13 years ago now. And today our we've, we've grown and we've learned and we've expanded. Our instruments are in over 200 American correctional facilities, uh, and we run programs uh, around the country at Rikers Island in New York, uh, in the Cook County Jail in Chicago, in the Michigan Department of Corrections, in Florida, the Florida Department of Corrections, in, in uh, Utah, in Arizona, and we, we run programs here in California. We're in 11, on 11 California prison yards and we run songwriting workshop programs where we help people learn how to express complex, painful feelings and memories in songs, in art. It, it helps them, first thing it does is it makes them feel better about themselves because they carry this, we all carry this stuff around with us and if we can get it out into the sunshine, it takes the power out of it. I haven't met a prisoner yet that didn't have something really terrible happen to him as a child. I did too. Every, they all want to talk about that. I want to talk about it. You know, we all want to be recognized. We want our story heard by someone. And so we give them that opportunity. We show them how that can be done in, an, in a non-confrontational way in a positive way, in a way that adds some beauty to the world, that contributes something of value to the world, that the prison has nothing to do with the prison. They can't take it away from you. You can't buy this. You can only get it by doing the actions, by demonstrating it. They learn to collaborate with people that they wouldn't normally hang out with. In our workshops, um, we do not allow and do not recognize gang affiliations, uh, racial, racial differences, um, sexual preferences, class preferences. We're all artists in our workshop. And prison politics stays out on the yard. And the men love it. And the women love it. And the kids love it. Because in our workshops, they just get to be people. They just get to be natural, regular guys. And we can talk about anybody and anything. 
but we have to treat each other with dignity and respect and there can be no racial humor, no sexist humor. And we really work hard to, to uh, you know, the business of lyrics, you know, the, the, the popular form that music takes today is rap. And there's a lot of banging on the mic. And, you know, we tell people, if your story includes violence, then tell your story, but tell the whole story because the fact that violence enters your life does not does not make you a hero, doesn't make you a, a man amongst men, because there's always a downside to it. You know, someone in your clique betrayed you or you wouldn't be in prison. Someone did you wrong. You know, tell the truth. Talk about that stuff. Talk about the stuff that didn't go right. Tell the truth. Tell the whole truth. Because... We don't, you know, I've heard motherfucker this and motherfucker that and bitch this and, and, and bling. Uh, who cares? You know, it's been played to death. I want guys to work harder to come up with meaningful lyrics. You know, women are in prison. There are women everywhere. There are women correctional officers. In California, there's a lot of women wardens, and you can't disrespect them or else there's not going to be any program. Yeah. yeah. And, and they know that. So they, you know, they they follow our guidance. And and you know, the world is so much bigger. For example, we give them a theme to write on at each session. Say today we're going to write about kids, children. And I've got a black gangster over here. And over there I've got a Norteño. And we're writing about kids. And you find out they both want the same thing for their kids. And they find out that each other wants the same thing for their kids. And they connect. They connect in a way that they could never connect on the yard. They see that this other guy, he might have a different color skin, but we're, we're all the same. Yeah, I can see how powerful that is. I do have a question for you. One more, and then I want to move on. Recently... There was an interview with Tom Morello, and it was about one of the gigs he did with you. In it, and I don't recall exactly how he said it, but the gist of it was, he was really impressed with how well you communicated with the inmates, and how you could talk to them and they understood, and you were talking their language. My question is, you were in a long time ago, so we're talking decades here, is the language still the same? Has that evolved? Or, you know, once you're in, you're always in. Is that the way that works? Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, doing time, the fundamentals stay the same. <laughs> they, you know, the language is a living thing, and it'll evolve as it does out here in the free world, and new slang enters the lexicon. But still, a bit is a bit meaning my sentence, you know, my mm -hmm. bit. Guards are hacks. Guards are COs. Guards are the police. Um, that doesn't change. Prisoners, when I, when I was in, we were inmates. When I was released, I was an ex-convict. Then I became an ex-offender. Uh, and today I'm a returned citizen. It's all the same. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Okay. I mean, you know, return citizen is preferable. Yeah. 
but you know, doing time is a is a world that, I mean, even if you just did a year or six months, you know things that regular people don't know. I, I, I read a study once that said for a first time offender, they will absorb the entirety of their accountability in six months away from their world, their life, you know, incarceration for six months. Anytime after that, you're just warehousing them. Mm. So for first time offenders, you know, they're going to learn whatever lesson is to be learned in six months. Interesting. You know, sentencing has, has reflected uh, the worst of uh, American political power dynamics. For example, when I was sentenced, I received a four-year regular adult sentence from the judge with a three-year special parole term on top of it, which meant if I was paroled, and I served two years and 29 days and was rearrested on the 29th day, I would have to go back to prison and serve those three years over again. Mm. You don't get credit for your street time. I know men today who are serving life without the possibility of parole for the exact same crime that I, was, that I pled guilty to, trafficking controlled substances. So the sentencing just went through the roof. I mean, people are doing just unbelievable amounts of time. It's, it's, you know, and I, I complained about the four years then. I thought that was severe. And it is. For yeah. a first time nonviolent offender, you know, six months would have taught me everything that I needed to know about changing my antisocial attitudes and behaviors. I want to touch on some other things here. because You had a most interesting life. Tell me about the punk scene in New York City when you got involved after prison, because MC5, they were proto-punk. That's mm -hmm. the prototype. So you must have been quite revered, I would think, in New York. You know, amongst the, the, the community of, of musicians, I mean, you know, a lot of people, most, most guys that play in bands, they study other bands and who influenced who and and if they follow the connect the dots back far enough they'll they'll come to the mc5 and the stooges and so yeah it was but you know i i think uh i didn't get there till the er, early 80s and i think it had kind of peaked by then and i was not in the best of shape myself you know i had resumed my use of narcotics and i was drinking again I, di I didn't help my cause. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's jump ahead. Film and television, you've done a lot of that. So how did you get into it, first of all? Well, I moved to Los Angeles. This is where they do that. Mm -hmm. They make movies and TV shows here. So you got to be in the neighborhood, I, I believe. And uh, Did you move specifically for that? Yeah, I, because, I, you know, I was... In my late 40s and uh, getting in the van just didn't quite have the that excitement that it used to have you know and yeah. doing another tour of Canada or you know the south or something you know and playing these punk rock shitholes I'll, I'll do it you know yeah okay and I signed to a punk rock label Epitaph Records 
So, you know, I'm back in it and I'm out there, you know, humping the boonies in a van with three or four other smelly dudes. And we're playing one nighters across Europe and across the United States. And, you know, and it, I said, man, I don't want to do this forever. You know, is, is, is there a way out? And I remembered that I had always had an interest in scoring for film and television. In fact, one day when I was in prison, I was in with a great jazz artist, a jazz trumpeter uh, named Robert Chudnick. He was known as Red Rodney. He replaced Miles Davis in the Charlie Parker Quintet. Wow. And he was in his late 50s then, and we were watching the ball game, the basketball, and a Uniroyal tire came on, and he said, Wayne, you hear that trumpet? I said, no, Red, I, I'm not hearing the trumpet. He said, there's a trumpet on there. That's me. I said, no shit. Wow. Man, I'd like to do that. And he said, oh, you will. When your music, the style of music you play, when that becomes popular, you'll be doing commercials. I filed that away. So I'm living in L.A., and, and, uh, and I'm, uh, I've got a, a great manager, this young woman who's really a hustler. And uh, she's meeting people that work at the networks and the music departments and that kind of stuff. And one day she asked me if I wanted to have lunch. She's going to have lunch with a girl that's the head of music at Fox Sports. Sure. So we go and... and uh, we're just talking at lunch, and she says, I got this idea. I want to, I, I need a song that is for NASCAR, you know, but I want it to be about the guys that work in the pits. So we're eating, and I'm thinking, I said, well, let's see, how about uh, a, a quitter never wins and a winner never quits, but the heart of every champion is working in the pits. That's brilliant. Could you write that up? I said, sure, sure. I went home, and I demoed the thing up and sent it over to her. And she said, they didn't use it. <laughs> but they had a new show, and would I like to try to write the theme? Of course. And the show was called 54321. It was an extreme sports show when skateboarding and BMX and all that was emerging. And the show hit, found an audience right away, and they ran it like five times a day. It was in the early days of cable, which was incredible payments for me. Like, yeah. you know, every quarter I would get a check for a pile of money. I said, geez, this is great. You know, let's go buy some gear. <laughs> let's buy more computers, you know. So that started going well. And then uh, one day a friend, um, the dearly departed Hal Wilner, called me up and said he was working on a movie and it had some car racing in it and the composer they had on the film wasn't getting it. And and he told the director, you know, what you need is like a guy like Wayne Kramer who's like, can play aggressive rock guitar. So they called me and asked me and I said, sure, I think I can do that for you. And I went over and I met the director and I met the composer and we all talked and so I started writing some cues for them, and I and I wrote all the all the race scenes in Talladega Nights, and the director was my dear friend Adam McKay, and you know Adam is left of left politically yeah. and very very um, militant and and active, and so we just connected like you know we were we were brothers, 
And uh, so he included me on other things that came up, and I ended up scoring um, HBO's Eastbound and Down, which was another hit. And so, you know, I got lucky. I, I, I found some jobs that I could do, and, and they allowed me to learn the craft of scoring. And I took classes. I took classes at UCLA on the orchestra and the articulations and film scoring classes at the union. I took some courses and um, tried to do, you know, all composers have to study. <laughs> you have to learn the language of, of music and the theory of music and how chords are constructed and how melodies are harmonized. And, and uh, so, you know, I know a little bit about that stuff today and, and, uh, and I'm able to, you know, I didn't work much during the first round of the pandemic, but things have picked up quite a bit now. This, I'm doing a film here, and then I've got another one I'm working on that's just um, halted production for a while. So I've been very fortunate, you know. Yeah, that's awesome, Wayne. Awesome. It's tricky stuff because, you know, having been leading rock bands all my life really didn't prepare me for this kind of work. And in the end, the music is the easiest part of it. It's the fun part. The hard part is dealing with human beings, directors, producers. That's the hard part, you know, uh, managers, agents. This, that's the hard work. And it's not for everybody. Like, you know, if I wanna make a record, I call you up and I call up two or three of my friends and say, let's go in the studio. I wrote these songs, we'll cut them, yeah. Great, here's my record, it's done. Doesn't work like that in film and TV. It's not my music, it's not my idea. It's the director, it's the creator's idea. My job is to help him or her tell their story. I work for them. And there's a thing called notes. I write some music, I send it over, and they send me notes. Yeah, Wayne, we love it, it's perfect. But could you just, change the middle part and change the ending and oh yeah change the beginning <laughs> and i look at them and say absolutely i'm on it i'm taking care of it and not everybody can do that it, it rubs against the grain especially if you come from the band world yeah yeah definitely last question for you thank you you've been so generous with your time we can go on and on i love talking to you this is great <laughs> uh, and we can talk in so many other subjects i'm sure What's the best piece of advice that someone maybe imparted to you or maybe something that you learned along the way? Brush after every meal. <laughs> That's Good. important. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And floss. <laughs> I have an eight-year-old son and it's, son, did you brush? Yeah, I brushed. Did you floss? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm always looking for wisdom. I'm looking for how to be, how to make better choices, how to, how to act in a more human way, in a, in a more productive way, in a kinder way to myself and to the, the people around me. So, you know, you can learn a little piece of information and try to incorporate that into who you are and, and demonstrate that in the day you're in 
and then you're looking for another piece of information. So I, I don't know that the, you know, I mean, I learned some big lessons in uh, the 12-step program. I, I, I've been clean and sober for all day now. And uh, <laughs> um, one day at a time, you know, right? They, they, they taught me a few things. Uh, you know, if I don't lie, I'm not a liar anymore. If I don't steal, I'm not a thief anymore. If I don't play people, then I'm not a creep anymore. This, you know, these were big lessons for me to learn as a as a grown up. You know, I didn't I didn't stop drinking and drugging till I was 50 years old. I'm 73 now, and those those pieces of advice um, served me well. You know, to try to understand what the principle of humility means, to learn that I am no better than anyone else and no worse than anyone else, that I'm a fellow amongst fellows. I'm a worker amongst workers. You know, I, I used to have a lot of trouble with this kind of stuff because I thought that my shit was divine. I was gifted, I was inspired, and my ideas were better than everybody else's. Because I'm a free jazz fan and, and I study James Brown and I know more about music than anybody else does and my taste, and I was just a complete asshole, total complete asshole. So to learn that, that uh, you know, I just, I work in an industry with a lot of other people that work in this industry and we all do the best we can, that, uh, you know, I am imperfect and I will remain imperfect all my days, uh, that, I, that I, I'm not going to get it right, I'm going to blow it, but I know what to do when I blow it. I, I know how to, how to apologize. I know how to make an amends. I know how to clean, keep my side of the street clean. So those things um, have been big learning experiences for me. I'm leery of my own counsel. <laughs> I try to listen and learn from people that know better than me, and most everybody does. You can find out more about Jail Guitar Doors at jail-guitar-doors.myshopify.com. That's jail-guitar-doors.shopify.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find an Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Thank you.